Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about the opportunities and challenges of developing cooperative businesses. The Common Share is produced by Cooperatives First, a business development organization that increases awareness and understanding of the co-op business model and supports cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For a background around co-ops and a better way to do business, visit our website, cooperativesfirst.com. The site has great resources and business development tools for groups forming new ventures. I'm Asa Marshall, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Brett Fairbairn, a fellow in cooperative history and governance with the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Brett is also a professor with the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy. He's been with the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives since 1986 and served as its director from 2000 to 2004 and again in 2015. As a historian, Brett has researched and written extensively about cooperatives. In his more than 80 publications, he's focused on the history and interdisciplinary study of democracy, social movements and cooperative enterprises in Canada and around the world. In 2002, he was awarded the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal in recognition of his public and scholarly contributions, and from 2002 to 2007 was the principal investigator of the largest research project ever undertaken on co-ops in Canada. Dr. Fairburn will be leaving the University of Saskatchewan to start his new role as President and Vice-Chancellor at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, B.C., And we wanted to speak to him about his career in cooperatives and give him a chance to reflect on what he's learned throughout his career before he leaves for the newest part of his career. So thank you, Brett, for being here today. Thank you, Asa. It's a pleasure. So I guess uh, I wanted to start out, Brett, with just asking you, where did your interest in cooperatives come from? You've been studying them a long time. Why did you decide to focus on co-ops? You know, when I think back, uh, like a lot of people, I think it probably goes back to when I was a kid, um, that I grew up in a family where people knew about co-ops. So my my mother's family had farmed up in the Melfort area, and uh, my grandfather had been on the board of the local co-op. They were involved in the wheat pool, so there was a kind of a general awareness, but then most specifically, my father was a journalist, and in 1966, he got a job at the Western Producer, which is a farm newspaper for Western Canada that for at that time and for a long time was published by the Saskatchewan Wheat Pool. So he was really involved in co-ops and in the farm community. Um, so I guess I kind of knew about co-ops. I, I must have, um, when I think back, I must have thought they were kind of cool because I do remember when I was in uh, student politics at university advocating for students to create co-ops and things like that. So that was before any any academic study of any kind. So I think it goes right back to uh, to childhood. And then you know, when I was uh, was studying, um, I am certain that uh, cooperatives were never mentioned in any class I took in uh, elementary school, in high school, or in university. So it actually had never occurred to me that there was such a thing as academic study of co-ops. It was just something I kind of knew from the family and community angle. Um, so there was no preparation for it. I didn't, uh, you know, take courses or get a graduate degree in co-ops. There was nothing like that at the time. But there was was a job that came up at the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives, and they, they advertised uh, in an interdisciplinary way. This was back in 1985-86. And I thought, well, you know, I know history, I know social history, I'm interested in democracy and uh, and so forth. And I thought, I, I bet I could make a case that I could do that for the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives. So I did, and you know, either they thought I could do a good job or they had a really poor candidate pool because I got the job. Um, and that kind of started this uh, this career. Okay. And so given that you are a historian and you've spent a lot of your time focusing on um, on the history of co-ops, can you, you talk a bit about the significance that they've had 
in the history of Western Canada? What were they maybe a response to and, and what impact have they had? It's a great question, and a lot of people um, who kind of grew up in Western Canada, especially in rural areas, uh, know that co-ops have been part of the fabric of, uh, of rural communities. Uh, when I look at it with, uh, with the perspective of a social historian, I guess, though, I would say that the way to think about it is that co-ops were started in Western Canada as part of the process of colonization and settlement. And that's similar to other parts of the world, you know, when, uh, when British settlers, when white settlers uh, went to, uh, to Kenya, when they went to South Africa, uh, when they settled in other countries, they formed co-ops to kind of help not just build the local communities, but attach themselves to the global economy for exports and for inputs for farming and all that kind of stuff. And that's really how it was in Western Canada. So it was, um, uh, you know, not the indigenous population that formed co-ops or was organized to form co-ops. It really was the settlers. Now, in many cases, um, they were encouraged or supported by government officials. The early liberal governments in Saskatchewan really encouraged farmers to organize and form co-ops, and it was considered sort of uh, uh, preferable to have farmers organize their own businesses rather than to have um, them pressure the government to run the businesses for them. So there was that kind of encouragement, but it was also, in a way, a kind of protest because the farmers um, saw themselves with considerable justification as the small players in the economic system of the time who were vulnerable to the prices that were dictated by others. Um, So the grain companies told them how much they could get for the grain they grew. The input companies set the prices for the things they had to purchase. And I think if they weren't aware of it when they came, they became aware very quickly that farmers, thousands and thousands of farmers dealing with a handful of big companies just didn't have the bargaining power. And that insight was really the beginning of the Western Canadian farm co-op movement and the co-op movement more generally here. Um, so, I'd, you know, I'd kind of sum it up by saying, yeah, part of the colonization process, but in particular sort of a tool for the small colonizers, as uh, I know Albert Mamie called them, small colonizers and big colonizers. So a, a tool for the small colonizers to get a fair deal as part of the settlement of Western Canada. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned in one of your papers, I think you summed it up as uh, cooperatives were the individualists' answer to the challenges of the prairies. So, you know, Indigenous people were, were already working together, living collectively on the land, and so co-ops were maybe the tool for, as you mentioned, the colonizers to do something similar. Yeah, and, and you make a really good point, because we tend to define co-ops as, um, you know, incorporated modern-style businesses. And if, and if you define them that way, and that's usually how people do it, then, uh, then you only have co-ops once you have a modern state and, uh, you know, conventional modern legal system and all of that. But another way to look at it is if you kind of look at the International Co-op Alliance definition of co-op, so autonomous associations of people working together in an enterprise for their own use. And if you're flexible about how you interpret that, then I think there's an opportunity to look at Indigenous societies, First Nations and Métis societies in the prairies, in a new light and say, you know, 
when they organized a, a bison hunt or when they uh, organized uh, fishing in the river with, uh, with fences and, uh, and so forth, those were autonomous groups who self-organized for that activity um, and who did it for, for their own benefit. So I, I think, and, and there might be a good reason to take that more expansive view, um, in which case you'd really say that cooperatives are as old as there have been people in, uh, in this part of the world and they're a natural way of organizing economic activity in this region. Mm-hmm. In your, you know, your time studying cooperatives, have you seen an increase in the number of Indigenous cooperatives popping up, or is it becoming a tool that Indigenous communities are starting to use more frequently? Um, uh, you know, there has been an increase, but I'd also say that it's not as uh, simple as outsiders might assume to incorporate co-ops in Indigenous communities. Uh, you know, the, there was kind of a first wave, and I think about the, the CCF government in Saskatchewan in the 1940s, when they thought, you know, co-ops uh, are a great thing. They had the word co-op in their name, the Co-op Commonwealth Federation, which, by the way, not all cooperators liked, um, but they did have it in their name. Um, and they, so they thought co-ops were a good idea, and there were people in the Douglas government in the mid-20th century who wanted to uh, do something to support the development of First Nations communities and northern communities. So they did actually have a bit of an agenda of going out to organize uh, First Nations people to form co-ops, and it, um, it didn't work very well. It actually looked a lot like uh, some of the forced efforts to develop co-ops in developing countries around the world in the 20th century. If you look at photos from that era, you'll often see, you know, the the indigenous people sitting in the audience, the members of the co-op, and they'd have an indigenous board sitting at the front of the room. But in the back of the room were the white government officials and uh, co-op representatives of co-op organizations kind of overseeing all the proceedings. So there was that kind of paternalistic approach that did not work well. And, you know, we know that authentic co-op development comes from within. First Nations communities Métis and Inuit communities in Canada, uh, I think you'd want to to say they may have great ways of cooperating without necessarily forming a co-op by the official definition. Uh, But there is some more of it happening, and I think there's huge potential there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, too, looking at, you know, co-op development broadly, was there sort of a heyday of of co-op creation? Was there a time when there was a lot of co-op springing up? Um, Yeah, you know, you often see that when you look at different countries around the world. So for Western Canada, you see a lot of co-ops being incorporated from the early 20th century, more or less as early as legislation allowed. So that's in that kind of 1914 period in Saskatchewan through to the mid-20th century, so into the 1940s. So that was kind of the phase in the growth in numbers of cooperatives. But in fact, that was followed by a phase in which the size of the cooperative grew. So the number of people involved in co-ops continued to grow after that as the co-ops got bigger and their volume of business got bigger. Um, and eventually the number of co-ops actually declined as they as they merged and uh, combined into bigger organizations. You also see that pattern in other parts of the world. The timing is a bit different. So the, the way I, that I generally think about it is co-ops are constantly formed all the time, almost everywhere. 
any country you can look at that is free enough and stable enough to uh, permit people to associate, people will form co-ops. So there's kind of a constant trickle of co-ops that whenever people have the idea of putting together, uh, you know, a democratic association, let's be members and vote on things, with the idea of running a business for their own use. So let's have a co-op to collect shellfish or a co-op to market organic food or whatever it might be. As soon as people put those ideas together, they're creating a co-op, whether they've ever heard of a co-op before or not. But what you also see is that in certain times and places, there are social movements that pick up the idea of co-ops and spread it. So for the prairies, that was about the the farm movement in the early 20th century. It was really what spread the idea of co-ops, so that there were many, many emerging at the same time. In other parts of the world, they were different social movements. In the Maritimes, it was the Antigonish movement, which was an adult education movement. In um, Quebec, it was the, the Desjardins the movement. It was uh, French-Canadian and Catholic uh, nationalism, really. In different parts of Europe, it was workers' movement movements or Christian workers' movements, Christian social movements, farmers' movements. So the particular social movement, the particular timing varies from place to place. In, in the prairies, it was that early 20th century agrarian movement. And then since that time and the time that you've been studying cooperatives, have you seen that landscape change quite drastically or how, how has that landscape changed? You know, uh, clearly the pattern of formation of co-ops really follows this kind of, it's a classic um, growth curve that, you know, first the growth in the number of co-ops and that levels off, then the growth in the number of members and that levels off for the existing kinds of co-ops and then new kinds of co-ops may may come later. So we've seen that leveling off and, you know, one way I think about it is that a a social movement spreads ideas, the idea of co-ops spreads to every corner of society that's really receptive. Uh, to the people who are open to it and who can become aware of it. And it reaches a kind of saturation point. So I think we'd say in the prairies, yeah, it's pretty saturated for the the conventional kinds of co-ops, at least. And we have seen, uh, you know, the consolidation into bigger co-ops. That raises its own questions about how big it's appropriate for a co-op to get. The one thing that we have seen in this part of the world that's different and worth thinking about was the the collapse or the disappearance of the prairie wheat pools. And that certainly merits uh, special mention. So the the wheat pools were the biggest co-ops of that early agrarian movement, kind of conceived in the 1920s, and they sort of absorbed in some ways the earlier farm co-ops that had gone before them. So they really were the flagships of our co-op movement. And through an uh, interesting series of events that uh, is worthy of its own podcast and case study, sort of we lost the Saskatchewan and Alberta and Manitoba wheat pools. And that does leave this odd situation that in the prairies, which is known for farming, we actually have very few farming kinds of co-ops left. Other parts of the world actually have more of that kind of stuff than we do. So that's kind of ironic and sad for people who were involved in agrarian co-ops. You know, we still have co-ops where farmers purchase things together, but there's very little of that marketing processing activity. Mm-hmm. And the producer co-ops that I'm aware of now are more maybe based in horticulture, or I know there's increased interest in fishing cooperatives, that kind of yeah. thing. So maybe not the grain or really strictly agricultural-based ones anymore, but are producer co-ops still a popular model, do you think? I think around the world they're one of the first models that people think of, and they take many forms. But, but it is interesting. Um, co-ops reflect their times. 
So the idea of a big agrarian marketing co-op that almost all the farmers in the prairies would grow wheat and they almost all of them would sell their wheat through a single co-op, that's a real early 20th century idea. Uh, and of course, since then, we've seen the diversification of agriculture. Uh, it's a really different market now. The idea that you would have everyone or huge numbers of people concentrating on a single generic commodity, that they'd all kind of grow the same thing and market it together, that's last century's economy. So the modern economy, I think, is more about niches and many different uh, projects, many different products, um, specialized knowledge. And I think that's suited to different kinds of cooperatives. Some more varied, more small scale. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm wondering if, you know, reflecting on, on your career and the, the amount of research that you've done, what are some of the most important things you think you've learned or what are the lessons that you've taken away from, from your time studying cooperatives? Uh, I'd say it's really hard to, uh, to boil down but maybe the the biggest takeaway is about how much tacit knowledge is wrapped up in co-ops. So in uh, in uh, you know in universities, uh, people in different disciplines look at co-ops, and they may have theories of how co-ops work. And the ag economists will have a different theory than the political scientists. Um, I've done a lot of research in co-ops, talking to people, and a lot of those, especially the disciplinary academic theories, um, are pretty far out of touch with what people are actually doing and actually wanting to do when they form a co-op. So I guess I'd say the most important thing I've learned is that when it's about co-ops, you have to see what people are doing from the member's perspective. Um, So what is it they want, not uh, what does an academic want their co-op to do. Um, And then you can judge the effectiveness of how they govern it and how it's run, but by the standard of what the members' needs are and what the members' objectives are. So co-ops aren't formed to put abstract ideals into practice. That's not really the the thought process of the members. And whenever uh, whenever an academic studies co-ops, there's always the risk that you judge them by that absolute standard, that they're supposed to be a democracy, they're supposed to be a socially progressive organization, they're supposed to be something that the researcher has in mind. But what they're supposed to be is, uh, is what the members have in mind. So that, that would be the biggest takeaway. That's excellent. And I, I know you've done a lot of traveling around, especially recently around Western Canada, around Canada, visiting different co-ops and you know, seeing that ground level cooperatives in action rather than sort of the academic perspective. So is there anything you've taken away from your your travels? Do you have a favorite uh, co-op or place that you've visited in in your travels? Well, you know, I don't I don't think I want to name any favorites, but I would I would say um, when you get into this as a field, it's actually a lot of fun to travel around and visit co-ops and talk to the people in them. So you know, I have had research grants, I've had projects, and uh, I've had to go out and interview people. But really, it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it's good to have an excuse to do it. So to visit people in a co-op to see what they do, to kind of appreciate what they do and how they work together, um, I think is amazing. I've had a lot of fun in my career visiting uh, retail cooperatives. And one of the things that's interesting about that is when you look at the kind of retail co-ops we have in Western Canada, um, you know, they sell food, they sell petroleum fuels, uh, building supplies, and crop supplies if you're a farmer. 
but all of us eat food, and almost all of us in Western Canada drive cars. So I've tended to find that that kind of co-op is really relatable and really accessible. So to walk into a grocery store and, uh, and you know, after I've listened to managers and members of boards and staff and members talk about their co-ops and what they're doing, um, you can sort of look around and kind of see the signs of the, the marketing, like what they're trying to do with the store, um, how they're trying to create a sense of place that's distinctive to that community or how they're trying to create a good experience for their members and uh, just to appreciate the small things that uh, marketing and branding and all the rest of it are not are not boring they're they're actually interesting um, and they're a little bit different at least a little bit different in co-ops than in other businesses um, so I've really enjoyed that part of it mm-hmm. as an organization a big part of what, what we're trying to do is get the idea out there that it's a very diverse and versatile model so as you mentioned most people are familiar with the, the co-op grocery store, um, the gas station. Those are the ones that they they know and they interact with on a regular basis in their communities. But what are some of the the cooler, different ideas that you've heard of out there, um, different ways of applying the co-op model that maybe people aren't as aware of? You know, I remember um, Ian McPherson, who was a big international authority and a Canadian historian and scholar of cooperatives. Um, he used to say that he had observed cooperatives in every line of business and industry except mining. And then Ian passed away a number of years ago. But then at a conference, I heard someone give a paper and they referred to a cooperative mine. So I think we can now say with some confidence that it's every line of business we have seen cooperatives. And, um, you know, any good or service you can think of. In some cities in Canada and in Europe, there have been uh, cooperatives of sex workers, cooperatives in every kind of agriculture, people buying manufacturing firms and converting them to worker co-ops, and sometimes big factories and sometimes small specialized firms. Professional services are probably really well um, um, uh, suited to worker co-op models. So almost any high skills, high knowledge profession you can think of might lend itself to a co-op model. And then, uh, you know, there's all the other diverse forms in the world. People have heard of kibbutzim in Israel where people live and work and uh, originally engaged in agriculture together. Um, so there's every every possibility. In Canada, by the way, the most uh, numerous cooperatives um, are housing cooperatives. That's an interesting thing to mention in the prairies uh, because housing co-ops are mostly represented in Canada's big cities. And one of the gaps that it's uh, it's worth thinking about is what about housing needs in um, you know medium-sized cities, small cities, small towns, and rural areas. So housing co-ops are a big deal around the world. They're a big deal in parts of Canada, but we don't know that much about them in uh, in the prairies. Mm-hmm, that's true. Um, I know when we go to BC, often there's a yes. lot more, and especially in in Victoria, places like that where housing costs are high, there seems to be more housing cooperatives there. Um, from our experience in Saskatchewan currently, there's a lot more interest in rural areas that are in need of senior housing. Yeah. Um, so we're working with a couple of groups right now that are interested in that, and we get approached more and more by people who are interested in, in senior housing cooperatives. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens is when co-ops get established, people get a kind of set idea of what they're for, and then they become 
less aware of other opportunities where that might be a little bit different. So we got used to the idea in Canada that housing co-ops are to deal with high prices, high costs of housing in urban areas, and to a degree with social policy. And we actually got that idea not necessarily because cooperators thought that way. We got the idea because the government of Canada targeted its programs that way. That was the need they wanted to address when they encouraged the development of housing co-ops in the 1970s. That's not to say it's the only need that's out there, and you gave a great example. So housing co-ops, any kind of co-op, it need not be about the cost or the price of a service. It might be about the quality of the service or some special need to be addressed. Seniors housing co-ops are a great example. The first I heard of uh, seniors housing co-ops in rural areas was from some of our colleagues in the United States cooperative movement uh, in the Midwest. Uh, this would have been 10 or 20 years ago. And I thought that that's a great idea. Yeah, that, that's going to spread. We need that to spread into, uh, into Canada. I, I, you know, I might add something on that, too, that everywhere that co-ops exist, they tend to get taken for granted because they're kind of um, part of the community and they're deeply woven into it. When you travel around the world, though, and you see how different the co-ops are in one place than they are in another place, that's, uh, that, that's really what opens your eyes. Th- there are lots of places in the world that feel like we do in Saskatchewan, that kind of we invented co-ops and uh, they're they're kind of distinctively ours. And, uh, you know, Saskatchewan used to call itself Canada's cooperative province. So, yeah, everyone kind of thinks they came up with the idea. And if you quiz them, the ones who are well-informed will acknowledge that, oh, yeah, there was England and 19th century workers in this place called Rochdale, and they're kind of aware of that. But still, we, we kind of feel like we invented them. And in, in Quebec, they feel like they invented them, I can tell you that. And if you go to Alphonse Desjardins' house, the great founder of co-ops in Lévis in Quebec, there's a whole museum dedicated to him and his wife. Um, if you go to Germany, they're sure they invented them there. And, you know, credit unions and agricultural co-ops, they kind of did in a lot of ways. So everybody kind of thinks they know co-ops, and everybody has a claim to them, but the whole picture is a lot more complicated. Yeah, and I know um, also I've, I've taken a few of your classes, uh, Brett, and something you've mentioned in courses too is that people at times try to assign an ideology to co-ops as well, right. and, and that isn't accurate or relevant either. Can you talk about that a little? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting topic. So, you know, the long and the short of it is if you name a political ideology, I, I can probably find an example for you of co-ops that adhered to that ideology. So the idea that co-ops necessarily reflect one um, you know, political party or political view rather than another just doesn't hold up. Um, so we know that conservatives have often been interested, and uh, often Christian conservatives in European traditions have really been interested in how co-ops reinforce communities and strengthen communities and hold them together in the face of economic changes. And we know that uh, left-wing uh, workers' movements have embraced co-ops. That's kind of the British example. And every nationalist movements, uh, Quebec kind of fits that mold. So there, any, any um, ideology you can mention, co-ops have been associated with it. Um, For a long time, co-ops actually had political neutrality as an official principle of the international cooperative movement. And that has a really interesting history. 
because in the in the early 19th century, co-ops were associated with uh, Robert Owen, who was a reforming industrialist and who had really provocative views on a lot of subjects. And uh, and he, I think, he was one of the first people who would ever have been characterized as a socialist, notwithstanding the fact he was a factory owner. But uh, but that, that those were his views. He also had controversial views on religion, which at the time was more of a problem. So his uh, his followers, who were kind of burdened by him being the figurehead of their movement, passed a resolution at one of their meetings that co-ops were not bound to the political or religious views of Robert Owen or any other person. And that was kind of the beginning of this tradition of co-op neutrality. And as that kind of evolved over the years, I think what it really amounted to is to say that co-ops represent the interests of their members. And especially when their members are divided politically, you shouldn't expect the co-op to be aligned with one uh, one political view. Uh, the co-op isn't about politics. It's about services and communities and all that kind of thing. We uh, we tend to think in the Western Canada of the association between cooperatives and the CCF. But I mentioned earlier, uh, in fact, it was liberal governments in the first uh, decades of Saskatchewan's history that really began promoting co-ops and encouraged the idea. So there's there's been lots of different associations. And it, I think that's probably a, a good thing, but people always want to try and pigeonhole things, right? So some people will say, you know, co-ops are left-wing and therefore we don't need to pay attention to them. And other people will say, oh, they're, uh, they're, they're corporate and they're, you know, they're just like other stores. We don't need to pay any attention to them. And so people who want to dismiss them will pigeonhole them, but that's not really what they're about. No, that's interesting. And yeah, you don't often hear of, most business models don't have an inherent, you know, political a viewpoint attached to them in the way that co-ops do. So I'm not sure what it is that sets co-ops apart in that way that people want to try and put a label on them. Uh, you know, I think one of the driving forces is that in mid-20th century Western Canada, co-ops were so popular that the political parties wanted to kind of bask in their reflected glow. Um, so they all wanted to be able to take credit for the co-ops. Uh, so yeah, the Co-op Commonwealth Federation, I would actually argue, did not do a lot in terms of government policy for promoting co-ops. Uh, but they paid tribute to them, and they kind of capitalized on their popularity. Um, Social Credit in Alberta, uh, again, had co-ops, formed co-ops, worked with co-ops. Uh, but again, it's uh, the co-ops were there first. It was the political party that kind of rode on the back of the co-op movement more than anything else. And so now that you're reflecting back on co-ops, Brett, what do you think about the future of co-ops? Where do you see the sector going in the future? Uh, one of the great things about being a historian is that you specialize in everything but the future. So I don't <laughs> usually need to answer questions about that. But 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 everyone does wonder, yeah, mm -hmm. where are things uh, headed? You know, it's always difficult to figure out which present-day trends to project forwards. But I think one of the sort of really big trends spanning decades now has been um, the, the breakdown of the old industrial economy that was geared around commodities and really large-scale economies and economic efficiencies in handling large-scale commodities. And for 40-ish years, um, that economy has been breaking down with the decline of old industries and the rise of new ones. And I think economically, what that's about is really much more flexible and diverse opportunities, more niches, and a greater importance that's attached 
to ideas and skills rather than machinery and commodities. So there will always be room for businesses and for co-ops that handle commodities and uh, kind of do things on a large scale. But I think for the future, probably more people should be thinking about, uh, you know, occupations for themselves and their children, industries for their communities that have to do with uh, with human skills, with social skills, with social uh, services. And there's, I think there's an expectation on the part of um, uh, employees and consumers as well that businesses will have social dimensions to them, uh, more so than in the past. It's clear that the corporate for-profit world uh, is increasingly acknowledging that business has social purposes beyond just making a profit. There are many for-profit businesses that are consciously donating to community causes, adopting policies that are good for the community, and kind of using that to build their brand. Um, So that is a big trend in uh, society and in the economy, and that's a trend where co-ops fit really well. So people who are in co-ops or people who might form co-ops I think need to do some work um, to stay out in advance of what for-profit businesses are doing. And it's not enough to kind of have a co-op advantage. You have to capitalize on it and make it count. But I think there's a big opportunity there for people who appreciate that social value added and understand how a co-op can do that better than other forms of business. Mm -hmm. And so as your time at the center kind of wraps up, Brett, what, what are you working on just now? funny you should ask. So I have one of these uh, projects that I love. I have uh, the opportunity to uh, drive across western Canada and stop in kind of wherever there's a co-op and interview people and talk to them about what's going on in the retail cooperative sector. For western Canada this is a pretty big thing. This is I think the latest estimate was about 1.8 million memberships people in western Canada who are organized in retail cooperatives buying things like their uh, their groceries and their gasoline and so forth. And it really is striking to me uh, when driving across the West to see the investments that these co-ops are making, uh, certainly in the smaller communities where their competitors are not doing the same thing. So when you see a, a you know a beautiful new uh, co-op gas bar or liquor store in a really small town and you compare that to the facilities of the competitors, it's a bit of a statement about what commitment the co-op is making to that community and how much they value the local members. Um, but similarly in the cities, the co-ops are growing and investing and taking risks for long-term growth in a way that they haven't for decades. So um, it's a really interesting moment in that system's life. And one of the things I find uh, fascinating about it is the way in which um, as the co-ops grow and develop, they believe, they see themselves returning to their roots, uh, re-embracing those original co-op ideas and values and building into their branding and their business plans a way of doing business that's different than their competitors. The clearest way I've heard them sum it up when I interview the managers and the the volunteer directors is really that it's about taking a long-term view of the sustainability of communities and the sustainability of uh, of co-ops and not uh, not investing for short-term profitability not for the quarterly return but really uh, being there for the long term so that's fascinating to see all that and I I look forward to uh, getting the book done and being able to share a little bit of the flavor of that with people who read it. 
I, I will say that for, for this movement, uh, for this group of co-ops, uh, for the retail co-op sector, a lot of what they talk about is the importance of uh, meeting member needs and remaining relevant in the long term as needs change. And so that concept of relevance is important. And for them, that's a really interesting question because this is a system that handles a huge amount of petroleum fuel. And if you're talking about planning in a 50-year horizon, you know, they'll still be handling petroleum, I'm sure, but how much petroleum fuel is there in the future? And if you're looking for that relevance uh, in a changing world, uh, what does that mean? So they're they're thinking about those kinds of issues. And when they make investments uh, for growth, for diversification, for research and development in their system, they're they're certainly taking risks to do that. And I'm I'm intrigued by that. People don't often think of co-ops as risk-taking organizations. And yet every every business enterprise is, and if it's going to survive and be relevant in the long term, uh, it has to take good risks on its members' behalf. So those are some of the, the themes, at least, that I find important for this book. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, um, that's all the questions I had for you today, Brett. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Uh, you know, there's always, there's always more to say, but that was a great conversation. Thanks very much, Asa. Yeah, thanks so much for coming in, Brett. So join us again in a couple of weeks for the next episode of The Common Share.